welcome to episode 64 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. I'm your host, Chris Brown. Mental health is a political issue, even though we often discuss it as a personal one. So how is the current mental health crisis connected to capitalism, racism and other social issues? And in a different world, how might we transform the ways that we think about mental health, diagnosis and treatment? These are some of the big questions Misha Fraser-Carroll asks in her new book, Mad World, as she presents mental health as an urgent political concern that needs a deeper understanding beyond the scope of today's awareness-raising campaigns. It's my great pleasure to be joined on the show today by Misha for a conversation around the themes of the book. We'll be talking about the history of asylums and psychiatry, the relationship between disability justice, neurodiversity and mental health, art and imagination, abolition, policing, diagnosis and knowledge production. Mad World is of course available to buy now from Pluto Press. If you're listening to this podcast before the end of July, then the book is already 50% off as part of our Solidarity Summer Sale. If you're listening in August, then you can use our usual coupon podcast at the checkout on plutobooks.com to get 40% off. So without further ado, this is Misha Fraser-Carroll on Radicals and Conversation. Yeah, Misha, thanks very much for joining us on the show today. It's really lovely to, well, be back in the studio. It's actually been a while since we recorded one of these. Uh, the last time we were talking to Dan Glass and Josh Rivers about queer footprints. And it's always really exciting to do an episode of the podcast looking at one of our outspoken titles, because these are some of my favorite books at Pluto, certainly. And um, this definitely is no exception. Uh, it's a really excellent book, Mad World, the Politics of Mental Health. Uh, it's only just come out a few weeks ago, I guess, July 2023. So yeah, nice to strike while the iron's hot. Let's start with, I guess, some, well, where you start with the book. You know, you open it with a description of a dissociative episode, you know, one that lasted for a number of months. Um, and you express it really well in the book. So I was just wondering, could you describe for us here as well, you know, what it was like when you, you know, to use your expression, went mad? Of course. And firstly, thank you so much for having me, Chris, and for the kind words about the book. So like you say, the book opens with kind of an in-depth discussion of my own personal experience. And I was always clear when writing this that I didn't want it to be, you know, a kind of confessional or purely kind of memoir style thing, but it did feel quite important to locate, you know, what is the position that I'm coming from? What is my connection to this subject matter? And I think that I really started thinking in depth about mental health when I had this dissociative episode. And so for anyone who doesn't know much about dissociation, I basically had this experience for a number of months where I didn't feel real, which sounds straightforwardly mad when you say it, but that's really what the experience was like. I experienced a number of things like when I would look in the mirror, not in a metaphorical way, like I didn't recognise myself, like I literally didn't feel like it was me and I had a lot of feelings that were very out of body. You know, other people who experience this kind of dissociation often say it feels like you're kind of watching a TV screen or like a film, like everything you're watching isn't quite you. It's like you're not in your own life. And I remember my memory was really weird. My sleep was really strange. I would often literally not be able to distinguish between what was a dream and what was reality and that kind of thing. I think this is the kind of thing that maybe some people relate to, you know, when something really, really stressful or traumatic happens. Sometimes people say, oh, it kind of went by in a blur. Like it felt like an out of body experience. But it was pretty much 24-7 feeling like that for a few months. And it was only after maybe a month or so of feeling this way that I kind of was doing my research and found out that there was a name for this experience, which is uh, depersonalization, or also it's sometimes called derealization as well. And that it's a thing that other people also experience. And people often say, like, you know, it felt like such a relief to find out that there was a name for for this and it wasn't that I'd gone mad but for me it definitely felt like madness um, and I consider it to be kind of an experience of madness but I guess what often people find comforting about finding out more about what it is is that it's it's very connected to anxiety so yeah re really kind of high levels of anxiety often kind of bring about this state. Mm, yeah it's really interesting I mean you're already touching on I guess the sort of 
usefulness of like having a diagnosis or something that you can sort of say oh yeah that I've got this and that being I guess some sort of comfort or allowing you to sort of navigate what's going on with you which is something we'll come to later because you know diagnosis is one of the chapters in the book and also you know you're already talking about like madness and obviously mad is in the title of the book you know it's a book about mental health but you like terminologically you don't shy away from talking about madness as like experiences that people are having or that you've had and so I think that's just quite interesting again on the terminology of the book as soon as people pick it up they'll see that you talk quite a lot about body minds I think it's that way around isn't it as like one Mm -hmm. word without like a hyphenation or anything could you sort of say a little bit about what that means and why you've chosen to frame the conversations that are in the book uh, using this kind of language yeah so that term was when I thought quite a bit about before using because I remember when I started writing thinking oh I'm not sure you know does it sound a bit jargony but as I went on and continued with research and writing it just felt really right to me um so body minds is uh kind of a term that's used a lot in the disability justice movement and by kind of disabled thinkers and organizers and it basically describes kind of the mind and body but tries to gesture towards the idea that there's not a hard line between the two And I think this is mainly kind of to try to respond to the prevalence of mind-body dualism or what sometimes people call Cartesian dualism after Descartes, which, you know, suggests that our mental and physical worlds are very separate and that, you know, our rational minds or whatever are completely separate from our embodied experiences. And especially like throughout writing and engaging with kind of ideas that were critical of psychiatry, I found that a lot of the stuff I was reading did seem to take this kind of hard body mind split. And, you know, I talk about this in the book and I'm sure we'll talk about this a bit more on this podcast. Like there's often, yeah, these ideas that kind of circulate that are like, oh, mental health is very separate to physical health or, you know, mental health diagnoses are fake, but physical diagnoses are real. And I try to be quite critical of that idea in the book and actually interrogate the assumption that our mental and physical worlds are very separate. Especially, I think, core to this is kind of questioning this, like, very Western approach that is all about kind of rationality and not kind of looking at, yeah, how the two are really intertwined. Mm, Yeah, yeah, definitely. Before we kind of move on, I suppose, to the the meat of the book, I mean, you maybe have touched on it already, but, like, what kind of discourse have we seen, I suppose, around mental health kind of recently how would you typify the kind of writing or the kinds of books that have been published on the subject sort of recently? And what are you trying to do differently or additionally with Mad World? So I would say that especially kind of in the 2010s, like the last decade or so, a lot of writing around mental health was kind of very focused on awareness. I feel like we saw this kind of explosion, especially in the mainstream publishing space, of narratives that were very much about personal experience, memoirs, things that were very confessional um, and very individual. And while I do think there's a lot of value in that, I felt that, you know, these individual narratives and the prevalence of them, I think sometimes plays into like quite neoliberal ways of thinking about mental health as something that, you know, happens either like within our minds or like just within the therapy room and not being able to kind of link them up with bigger structural, political, economic concerns as well. And so with this book, I really wanted to kind of connect up like our experiences of what in the book I describe as madness or mental illness and actually how does that interact with oppression and marginalisation. So I have a whole chapter that looks at, you know, race and racism and the way that impacts how we experience distress, transphobia, um, things like class, but also looking at how more broadly the capitalist economic system is such a large producer of distress in contemporary life. So that was one thing that I was trying to do, trying to really kind of break apart and politicise experiences of distress. But I think there was a kind of second aim of the book, which was not only to look at like disproportionality so for example why are black people more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia or why are so many women just diagnosed with depression and anxiety but also to actually interrogate mental health itself as a social construct so I tried to push further and kind of ask how do we even construct 
madness or mental illness? How did we come to think of particular experiences as madness and other experiences as sanity? And actually, how does that construction interact with the capitalist economic system? Um, and also, could the ways that we categorise certain experiences, could they look very different in a different world? And so I try to really interrogate pathologization and, yeah, the, the ways that we describe certain things as illness or madness and kind of question, in a different world, could it be different? And actually, is that pathologization always good for us? And I argue that it's not. I don't know, I find with these books often, like, we start by kind of going into some of the history. Um, and I always really kind of love that because I'm, I guess, a historian originally by training at university. But um, that first chapter after the introduction is about the the history of the asylum, right? And you talk about how people deemed mad, like, firstly, that's quite a sort of porous categorization but the, the history of that is all very much tied up with the the history of the expansion of capitalism um so could you talk a little bit about i guess in brief the history of the asylum and the institutionalization of people who've been deemed mad um what sort of came before that sort of under feudalism for instance and how did that change with the advent of the industrial revolution and why is all of this yeah significant i suppose today yeah big questions um so for the majority of history, and I should caveat actually that, you know, in the chapter in the book, I specifically take a British focus. Yeah. So there's lots of variations in this history, depending on where you're looking at in, in the world. But also Britain is where the asylum system began. So I try to be explicit about that focus and also those limitations. But for the majority of history in Britain, mad or mentally ill people lived in the community so there wasn't like a mental health system that institutionalized people. People lived with their families or kind of, you know, in their towns or villages um, integrated with the community. And I chart in the book the first asylum, um, the world's first asylum, which was Bethlehem Hospital, which some people might be familiar with, colloquially known as Bedlam. And that was at the site that now Liverpool Street Station is at. And this asylum emerged and, you know, I think was kind of a very, very small institution um, for most of its existence. And then in the 19th century, you see this kind of big explosion in asylums across Britain. And I argue that the system expanded so much directly because of the capitalist economic system and the emergence of capitalism. And I argue that there are a few different reasons why capitalism saw the emergence of asylums. So firstly, you get the Industrial Revolution and the emergence of the factory, and factory conditions were extremely brutal. They were extremely dangerous. They were really, really fast-paced. You know, it's that kind of classic image of, like, the production line, which is moving really, really fast, and lots of people got injured. Um, but these conditions were very, very narrow, you know? They weren't um, self-directed. They were dictated by factory owners and kind of production pressures. And so before this... Obviously, we know that like life wasn't all good and rosy under feudalism. However, because people were in more kind of domestic home environments, they had a certain degree of say over the conditions of production. So Mike Oliver talks about this in one of his books, the fact that, for example, deaf people or visually impaired or blind people um, might be able to contribute to some degree or another to the process of production. So, for example, deaf people might learn through kind of observation and things like this. But as soon as you get the emergence of this factory system, many, many disabled people all of a sudden cannot participate in production at all. Um, and so that is obviously relevant also to mad or mentally ill people who might have kind of been integrated in some uh, way or another to producing, but suddenly they, they couldn't be a part of this system. So first you've got the, the emergence of that, but then you've also got things like the poor laws. So when the poor laws were introduced in England, all of a sudden the money, so there was money that was given to families to help them look after their mad relatives, uh, the poor laws took that money away. And so all of a sudden now, how are people going to be looked after in the community if there's not the money to do that? And the poor laws also sent people into workhouses 
and basically made them uh, kind of prove their worth in workhouses if they'd previously been unemployed. So that obviously also means that family members can't look after their mad relatives and also people going into the factories like more broadly. It just meant that this community-based approach to care was not possible. And so when you haven't got people who are able to look after family members, community members, where do mad people have to go? Like they were sent to asylums. And around the same time, we also got the passing of two asylum acts, which basically mandated the building of asylums in every single county in the country. So you've got this huge explosion of a system and you've got lots and lots of people who are being sent to asylums, um, many of which, you know, their families might not have wanted to send them there, but they were presented under this emerging new system with no other option. And so what you see when people start getting sent to asylums is a kind of concerted push to work out, well, kind of how do we categorise different types of madness? You know, if people are being admitted to these institutions, there needs to be some sort of record keeping of what is the condition that they have. And so at this point in history, there were kind of two main categories, which were called mania and melancholia. But as time progresses, you get kind of more and more taxonomization of categories and more specific categories. And if you look through the history, some of these categories are really, really dubious, like they're laughable. Like you've got people admitted to asylums for reasons like politics, (laughs) um, novel reading, um, hatred of spouse, immoral life was a big one, Um, you know, sex workers uh, were often admitted to asylums. Lots and lots of categories of, quote, madness that now we kind of look back at and we think, well, that's not what we consider to be mental illness today. Um, But I think they they really shed light on the fact that diagnostic categories, they are highly political and they're always going to reflect like the political values of particular historical contexts. So that's a bit about the emergence of the system. And then was the second part of your question about why it's relevant today? Yeah, it was. So... While writing the book, I I thought a lot about, you know, this history, what can it kind of tell us about today? And I think one crucial element of this history that I think links to the central argument of the book is that it really shows that categories of madness or mental illness are not these objective biological facts that we often consider them to be. I think we often talk about mental illness as if it's kind of just like something that's enshrined in nature and that these categories are kind of God-given and that they have really hard boundaries. And I want to kind of reveal, by looking at this history of diagnosis in particular, that there are diagnostic categories that have emerged and disappeared throughout history. Some of them, again, you look back and you think, well, you know, how could anyone have ever thought that this was a kind of biological illness? Like, there was a category called drapetomania, which um, black people um, who were enslaved were often diagnosed with. And this category, you know, the symptoms were running away from the plantation. <laughs> and it, You know, that seems so obviously now with hindsight, not what we'd call a, quote, real illness. But actually at the time that was considered by some of the leading physicians to be a kind of valid diagnostic category. And so I want to kind of point towards the fact that even the categories we have now are highly political they are contested, like they're constructed by our material conditions. And also the the line between madness and sanity, it's very porous, it's not a hard line. So that's one, one thing that I think is really crucial. But another thing I think that we need to think about is, you know, if the asylum system emerged under capitalism, why do we often talk about, you know, mental hospitals or what were called lunatic asylums? Why do we talk about them like they're a relic of the past? Why do we say, well, this is a system that's that's disappeared and, you know, we just see it come up in, in horror films or, you know, I talk about how there are cartoons, episodes of The Simpsons where people kind of make jokes about the lunatic asylum. And I argue, well, if it emerged under capitalism and we still live under capitalism, then the system, I think, is still in many ways like still functioning. And so I look at the fact that, for example, 50,000 people are still detained under the Mental Health Act in the UK every year. And that allows people to be institutionalised um, or you know, sectioned without their consent. It allows them to be forcibly treated and medicated without their consent. And actually, these approaches to madness and mental illness 
you know, they never really stopped. We may say that that the systems are relics of the past, but they're still very much kind of ongoing in their function. Mm, yeah, and, and I suppose another thing that comes up in the book is like how much the sort of carceral institutions today, I guess, interact with people with mental health problems. I think the statistic is something like, you know, 40% of police time is spent responding to incidents that are linked to mental health. Mm-hmm. And so... I suppose you could say that the prison system today perhaps performs some of the same functions as like the asylum did. So it's not like Mm -hmm. that history is, um, as you say, there's no sort of like hard break with the past, but maybe other institutions are performing some of those roles today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think a lot of abolitionists point this out, you know, the fact that the histories of, you know, the two systems emerged around the same time in history, but also the lines between them have always been really, really blurry. You know, lots of people who have been criminalised and sorted into the category of criminal um, have also been in mental health systems. Lots of people in mental health systems, you know, have experiences of criminalisation. And also, you know, if we look at the prison or look at the asylum, as basically both institutions whose functions are to sort or warehouse people who are destructive to capital accumulation, I think it makes a lot of sense that there's so much overlap between the two systems and that, like you say, so much police time is actually spent responding to mental distress or madness. Um, I think, yeah, that the two systems serve quite similar functions under capitalism and that there's not really a hard line often between between the two. And also, I think the kind of cultures that you see within them and the practices, for example, kind of restraint, you know, sectioning again, it's, it's about removing people from their communities. Yeah, they've got, got a lot of overlap. Mm. There's a quote from one of the chapters here, which I thought was quite useful as a framing, and I guess kind of touching on how police interact with this. So... When we talk about mental health and oppression, we need to account for multiple realities, you know, how the world drives us mad, how the world comes to categorize us as mad, and then how the world responds to our madness. I thought this was really useful framing. And I guess you then go on in the chapter where you kind of use this to talk about, actually, you've already touched on it, some of the like, stuff around racism and schizophrenia and mm-hmm. and so on. But um, could you expand on this in the context of some of what follows in the book, I guess, for instance, around racism and schizophrenia? Yeah, so in um, my chapter on, I call it mental health in a maddening world, and this chapter looks at the ways that, like you say, certain marginalised groups are more likely to experience distress. For example, black people, trans people, queer people, women, but they're also more likely to be uniquely pathologised in certain ways. So again, it's looking at that kind of constructivist angle. So to take the example of black people in Britain, where I think it is, but don't quote me on this, I think it is we're nine times more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so we can look at like lots of different potential reasons why this is. So is it that um, black people are more likely to have experiences of trauma because of racism in Britain? Um, And there's lots of evidence to suggest that trauma might be correlated with um, schizophrenia diagnosis. Is it this? Or is it the fact that actually schizophrenia, um, and there's a very good book called The Protest Psychosis that delves into this a bit more, um, schizophrenia is a diagnosis that's very criminalised. You know, in the diagnostic criteria for schizophrenia, um, it talks about hostility, aggressiveness. And is it that actually psychiatrists and doctors who do the diagnosing, they're looking at black people and specifically black men who are, again, disproportionately likely to be diagnosed, and seeing danger when actually the person is in distress. Or are there also kind of um, cross-cultural differences? So, for example, in lots of African and Caribbean cultures, things that would be called symptoms of schizophrenia, for example, hearing voices or seeing visions, lots of these things might actually be considered to be spiritual and to have kind of unique religious or spiritual meanings in our cultures. Um, And I can testify to that from my own family's experience as well. You know, my mum and my grandmother were in the Pentecostal church, which, you know, was like a very big thing in Antigua, um, where my family is from. 
And in the Pentecostal church, it's not only kind of tolerated to say that you're seeing things or hearing the voice of God or, you know, speaking in tongues. It was often like encouraged and seen as, you know, oh, you're a very spiritual person. You know, you're very connected, like God is using your body as a vessel. And so I think that when we look at the disproportionate diagnosis of schizophrenia um, in black people, we shouldn't, again, take that at face value and just say, okay, oh, well, it's that black people are more likely to have this kind of inherent objective illness within their brains. There are many, many dimensions to diagnosis that actually um, could account for this. And I also kind of look at a few other examples of this kind of thing. So, for example, trans people, like we know that trans people um, are disproportionately likely to attempt suicide or die by suicide. But again, we shouldn't take this as kind of some sort of inherent internal fact. We need to look at the transphobia that faces trans people in our broader society. Um, and as well as that, we also need to look at the ways that trans people have historically and continue to be pathologized by psychiatry. You know, most trans people in the UK still need to get a diagnosis of gender dysphoria if they want to access gender affirming healthcare. And also for the majority of like the history of psychiatry, transness itself was considered to be a form of mental illness. And so I, I try to kind of break all of these things apart and, and say it's not just enough to look at disproportionate distress, like marginalised and oppressed people for the majority of the history of psychiatry have been pathologised in their own unique ways. Yeah, I mean, I thought the chapter on diagnosis was really interesting. I mean, you even talk about um, the example, I think, of being diagnosed with like a vitamin D deficiency or something, how even this like mm. a biomedical diagnostic approach is completely unable to sort of interpret what social or economic sort of factors might lead to that. I mean, let's talk about psychiatry a bit more because it's obviously something that is quite a big part of the book. I think maybe I've already mentioned this, but it feels like it is part of this or maybe the apogee of this kind of colonial or enlightenment approach to knowledge around mental health. Yeah, could you say a bit more about what it is about psychiatric approaches or psychiatric knowledge that can be particularly damaging. Yeah. So psychiatry is the approach to mental health that emerged kind of out of the asylum system that I've talked about already. And I think it's important to make clear that psychiatry has looked many different ways throughout history. There have been a number of different approaches, some of which are kind of more social or like what they call psychoanalytic. They kind of look at family dynamics and social dimensions um, and other approaches that are really, really grounded in this kind of disease and illness-based biological approach. But the approach we have right now since 1980 within traditional psychiatry is this very kind of individual illness-based approach. And this kind of leans a lot on biological ideas around what they call mental disorders or mental illness. And I argue in the book, I tried to add a bit of nuance to a lot of arguments that I'd come across before and kind of argue that while this biological, like very biological approach is obviously often used as a way of individualizing our experiences of mental distress, you know, this kind of chemical imbalance idea that kind of blames individuals and says it's all something within your brain, like it's not society. I also argue that a large issue with psychiatric knowledge is that it presents itself as kind of objective truth and that like the rest of medicine, it doesn't make space for the possibility that there are other ways of conceptualizing things and other kind of models for, for thinking about our realities. And I think that you see kind of this idea of like the idea that there's this one objective truth come up quite a lot in discussions and debates around mental health, you know? So you get professionals, for example, often arguing about is mental illness, is it a real illness or is it just society? Like, which is the truth? And I think I see these kind of debates often like kind of filtering into like Twitter and spaces like this. People saying, well, I feel like I do have an illness. Like, that's my experience of mental health. Like, it feels very bodily or it feels hormonal or something like this. And then other people saying, no, 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 like these diagnoses are fake or they're illegitimate. It's just society. And I kind of try to push beyond this binary debate and kind of argue that 
I think it's really important that we're able to push beyond this like objective truth approach and actually hold the possibility that we might all be able to make our own personal meanings out of mental health, you know? Like, is it possible that there could be plural realities, plural approaches to how we think about distress and what it is? And actually is part of the problem, this idea that we're going to eventually get this objective truth, you know? We'll find the blood test or the brain scan or, you know, the ultimate thing that will finally tell us what it is. And I think this kind of links into what I was saying before about cross-cultural differences and stuff like that. Like, what if in my culture, the way of making meaning about mental health is a spiritual one? Um, or what if, you know, the next person has a very social interpretation? The quest to find an objective truth, I think, is kind of a futile one. And I think is, like you mentioned, really rooted in quite a Western and Enlightenment kind of mindset that is all about being this kind of um, this scientific investigator that will uncover objective reality. And so while I don't argue that we should kind of dismiss or no longer pursue, kind of gather knowledge about mental health, I argue that I think we need to reorient the way that we approach mental health knowledge and be prepared to accept that there might be many possible truths that can kind of exist alongside one another at the same time. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there's a, I think you give an analogy in the book of, you know, the many ways in which you might know a tree as a useful comparison, you know, when we're forging a sort of new path towards how we might know or think about mental health, you know. Um, and yeah, relinquishing the possibility of a final truth does seem to be yeah, a key argument that runs throughout the book. You also talk about the sort of epistemic injustice in terms of like how people with, you know, mental illness or madness are also not seen as reliable interpreters of their own experience right so i suppose that's another mm -hmm. thing that needs to be problematized or sort of taken apart in in our mm -hmm. rethinking of these topics was that fair to say definitely yeah so i use this phrase epistemic injustice um, which was coined by the philosopher miranda fricker and it basically describes this idea that like certain people are not seen to be what she calls reliable knowers you know like the things that you know and your perceptions of the world are seen as inherently lacking credibility and untrue. And like, obviously this is a thing that applies to many marginalized groups, you know, to black people, to working class people, you know, we see this play out in um, the ways that institutions and, you know, educational institutions approach what's real or legitimate knowledge. But I think it also um, applies to mad or mentally ill people, you know, being seen to not be rational or sane it positions you as inherently discredited and inherently kind of your perceptions of the world. It seemed to be impossible that they could be true. And I think this is really disempowering for people who have been through mental health systems and want to speak about the injustice that they've faced. You know, they say they've been abused or forcibly treated against their will, but actually how can we trust their testimony and this kind of thing? Uh, that kind of stands in stark contrast to how uh, medicine and psychiatry is positioned. So like I said, we often see uh, medical knowledge to represent some inherent kind of highest form of truth, to be able to reveal objective truth, even if it directly contradicts the things that we believe about ourselves and kind of the lived experience knowledge that we have. And so I argue again that it's not that all knowledge that has historically fallen under medicine or psychiatry, it's not that it's like all inherently untrue, but actually that we really need to think about and rebalance like what we think about as truth and actually what we value as, as valuable knowledge. Because I think often our own experiences and kind of lived experience knowledge or the way that I make meaning out of my mental health, you know, as an individual, that's never seen to be as legitimate as the knowledge produced by medicine or psychiatry. We really need to reorient how we think about what's valid mental health knowledge and allow psychiatric survivors, people who have experience of madness or mental illness, allow them to play a key role in shaping mental health knowledge as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, um, I suppose this is making me think of, again, a bit in the diagnosis chapter where you know, you talk about what might a more democratic sort of reimagining of medical knowledge and diagnosis look like. And I suppose it's partly about removing 
or dismantling those kind of artificial divisions between expertise and lived experience. Yeah. Do you want to speak a little bit more to the question of like diagnosis, how it might be sort of empowering beyond just navigating one's way through the system as it exists today? Yeah, so this was one of the more complicated topics that I took on in the book, because I feel like we see a lot of really polarising um, debates in like the mental health space, and also I think online and stuff like that, a lot of really polarising debates about is diagnosis good or bad? Are kind of mental health diagnoses, are they real or fake? You know, again, are they illness or are they just capitalism or just the social world? And I try to kind of argue that like many of these things are actually true at once. <laughs> and also that the system of diagnosis that we have is so, so shaped um, by capitalism and who we see as kind of productive, unproductive, um, orderly and normal or kind of disorderly and abnormal. And I argue that all of these things are very political, but also that one of the key issues with diagnosis actually kind of isn't about the fact of it or like the label itself but actually one of the key issues is that diagnosis currently functions as a system of power so many of us have absolutely no say over the diagnoses that we get um especially in the mental health system you know you've got so many people who have been given diagnoses um, against their will without consent especially you know this especially applies to people who have um, been sectioned You've got lots of people who are given diagnoses, for example, personality disorder diagnoses. They can be very, very stigmatizing and can really, really materially impact the quality of care that you can receive with mental health services. And, you know, I know people who have had to fight to try and get these diagnoses removed from their records. Um, simultaneously, I know people, including myself, who have had to fight to get a diagnosis that they want. Um, so you can see that it's kind of, it's not as simple as being like, is it good or bad? It's actually that we need to look at the entrenched power dynamics that mean that we have very little say in the diagnoses that we receive. And it, this doesn't just apply to mental health. You know, you see people, especially with diagnoses, for example, chronic fatigue, you see lots of people having to really, really fight to have their struggles recognized within medicine. And so I look at self-diagnosis, you know, the, the process of actually looking at your, yourself and your own lived experience and saying, maybe this is the term that applies for me. Um, and maybe I don't need to get a doctor to give me this diagnosis. Um, so I look at self-diagnosis to kind of explore the possibility of a more liberating approach to diagnosis. And I think self-diagnosis is, you know, very big in, for example, autistic and ADHD communities you see a lot of for example support groups where people say we don't care whether you have a diagnosis or not you know no one's checking your papers at the door if you want to gain support from this community like the door is open for you and I think that self-diagnosis actually while some people frame it as you know we shouldn't all be pathologizing ourselves I actually think um, with the right approach, self-diagnosis can represent a really liberating and actually more autonomous approach to, you know, naming our own experiences and actually taking some of that power back. Because a lot of people who self-diagnose might have actually been denied a diagnosis by a professional and they've said, well, no, like <laughs> you don't get the final say in how I define myself. Um, but I think obviously self-diagnosis has to exist alongside people also rejecting diagnoses if they don't want them. And so, yeah, I think that while it's important that we still consider the social and political dimensions of diagnosis and of, you know, our distress, our experiences, I think it's absolutely valid for people to take back some of that power. And actually, if you feel that a term works for you or that a certain support group or community works for you, um, even if you haven't been given that kind of professional like rubber stamp um to be able to to use that diagnosis like use use it if it works for you yeah i think the chapter on like i think it's disability possibility i thought that was really interesting and you've already kind of touched on like the way that some communities like around autism and adhd found community online and found that to be really sort of valuable and helpful and i suppose it's quite interesting that you're putting madness and mental illness in conversation with you know disability politics and neurodiversity and all of this kind of thing 
Could you talk a little bit about, you know, how connected or not, I guess, movements around neurodiversity, for instance, and madness and mental illness have been in the past? You know, do you feel like neurodivergence is a useful organizing umbrella for, you know, that should include mad or mentally ill people as well? Yeah, I think this is quite a complex question because, you know, the neurodiversity movement in many ways has kind of existed like quite parallel to or, in a, you know, coming from a slightly different place to um, mad movements, which, as I mentioned before, you know, you've got the psychiatric survivor movement and also a movement called the anti-psychiatry movement, which traditionally has been kind of seen as, as the mad movements. And I think that mad movements have their own kind of traditions. So often, you know, one of these traditions has been kind of rejecting um, diagnosis is often kind of prevalent in the, these movements um, and saying kind of actually, you know, we're mad, like we don't consider ourselves to have any sort of like illness or kind of biological approach. And actually in some neurodiversity spaces, you do see kind of more biological. I mean, even in the name, right, neuro, you can see kind of a hint of like that kind of thinking. Um, and you've seen, like I said, like much more cultures that might surround more kind of like reclaiming of terminology and saying, well, it's valid for, for me to say I do have ADHD, even if, you know, I haven't had like professional diagnosis. And so you've got kind of rejection of diagnosis on the one hand and in many ways kind of reclaiming or acceptance on the other but I do think that it's really crucial that we actually link up the two and try to create a coherent politics between the two. Because while, like I said, the two kind of formal movements might have sprung from slightly different places, actually the history is very, very shared. So if you look at the history of what were called lunatic asylums, many of the people incarcerated are actually people that would now be considered autistic or to have a learning disability, and actually there wasn't always like a very kind of hard division between the two. And I think there's like some research that also shows that, you know, people who would now have a diagnosis of, for example, Down syndrome might have been historically categorized under the label of mad. And so, again, we see like these aren't very hard lines and that actually mad institutionalization and more broadly disability institutionalization served very similar functions and there was a lot of overlap. And even to today, autism is not formally considered to be kind of an issue of mental health explicitly. However, a really large proportion of people who are detained under the Mental Health Act, especially long term, are autistic people and people with learning disabilities. And so, yeah, there is so much shared struggle. And actually, I think also, you know, when we look at things like policing, and for example, people who are restrained or detained when they're having mental health crisis or people who die at the hands of the police, the officer is not stopping to be like, wait, are you autistic or is it that you're having a mental health crisis? It's simply that they're seen to be behaving abnormally. And so I think that it's really important to actually acknowledge that the experiences of like what we might more often consider to be neurodiversity, so like autistic people, people with ADHD, these experiences and experiences of madness are often kind of lumped under the same umbrella in practice in our society. Uh, and we have so much shared struggle and so many shared structures of oppression. And so I argue that people who experience madness or mental illness should absolutely uh, be able to consider themselves to be neurodivergent. You know, they do diverge from what is considered to be kind of the mental norm in our society. And that also, yeah, we should be connecting up the two movements and kind of holding together in solidarity. Mm, yeah. And I suppose also in this chapter, I mean, you're also talking about like disability politics and the politics of disability is having like a transformative power and being like urgent and relevant to mental health. I think one thing that I thought was quite useful in reading that chapter was learning a bit more about the social model of disability and seeing that as being, you know, obviously not a perfect sort of way of explaining or kind of interpreting disability, but as having some relevance to discussions of mental health and mental illness as well. Um, could you say a little bit about the social model of disability and why that might be useful to know about, I guess? Absolutely. So, to understand the social model, we first have to look at kind of the dominant model that we have in our society, which is often called the medical model. 
And the medical model, as the name suggests, is kind of traditional medicine's approach to disability, um, which sees it as an individual kind of deficit or defect within our own body minds as something to be cured and usually as something to be cured by engaging with the institution of medicine. Whereas in kind of the 20th century, we got the emergence of groups like the Union of Physically Impaired Against Segregation, which was kind of a Marxist disability rights group uh, in London. And they came up with their own alternative model, which was called the social model. And they argued that disability was not something uh, that was inherent kind of within our own individual body minds, but that actually disability was a force that came from society. So they argued that society disables us. Um, and so to give a kind of more concrete example of that, uh, one of the like kind of textbook illustrations that people give of the social model is, you know, a wheelchair user coming up against a flight of stairs at the entrance to a building. And so the medical model would say this person is disabled because they can't walk up the stairs. Whereas the social model dictates, well, actually, the problem is that the building has stairs. If the building had a lift, if it had level access, if it had a ramp, the person would be able to gain access to the building. And so I think this really sums up the social model because it conceptualizes disability as about man-made barriers in our society. And so, you know, you often hear people talk about accessibility. That's underpinned by a social model approach. So, you know, if disabled people can't be integrated into the school system or into the structures of capitalist work, the argument is that, well, these institutions are not accessible to us. And I think this has kind of a lot of potential implications for how we think about mental health. For me, I started to first kind of learn about the social model when I was at university and it really reframed the way I thought about mental health because I was thinking, well, when I'm too depressed to get out of bed and I can't go to my lectures, in many ways, like the thing I would benefit from, which is to be able to watch my lectures online, that's something that is also shared with my physically disabled peers who might not be able to get into the building physically because of, you know, what's considered to be their physical bodies. And it made me think about all of the different kind of adjustments that I could potentially have that would make life more livable and more bearable as a person who was experiencing mental health problems. Like, for example, extended library loans or extra time or extended deadlines, things like this. So I think the social model is really useful in that sense for thinking about mental health. But another thing I try not to shy away from in the book is the fact that there are also limitations to this way of thinking about disability, right? Because while extended deadlines might be well and good for a depressed person, it's probably not going to stop me from being depressed. <laughs> you know, it can't really get at this kind of um, what feels like a more internal component to my oppression. But I argue that it's kind of one useful tool for thinking about disability and that when we use it, it helps us kind of identify the structures and barriers that we face in the world and helps us tear them down. Hmm, yeah, no, absolutely. Thinking about then the chapter on art, where you talk about this interdisciplinary project, which involved a sort of a workshop with survivors and service users, in which it was about kind of reclaiming the setting of the asylum. Um, and I think you kind of list some of these kind of questions that were in, involved in this workshop. Like, you know, is it possible to go mad in a positive way? How would you create a safe place in which to do so? You know, if you were to design your own asylum, what would it be like? Which are all really fascinating questions. So I wondered if you recalled what any of the responses were or indeed like what your own response would be to any of these questions. Yeah, so this was a really fascinating project um, by an artist called The Vacuum Cleaner, um, which, like you said, asked the question, you know, what would it look like to have a safe place? to go mad and kind of if you designed your own asylum what would it look like and while you might say you know it's a bit like asking the question if you designed your own prison what would it look like mm -hmm. um he kind of returns to the original meaning of the word asylum which was kind of refuge safety like that's that's part of kind of the origin of the word and people gave really interesting answers and a lot of them you know they're extremely imaginative far beyond the bounds of, you know, what you'd think of as rational thought. So a lot of them are kind of, you know, include things like, oh, there would be 
a weather room where I could control the weather and I could, you know, be surrounded by rain if I wanted to, or a nature room. Um, or I think some people said there'd be a teleportation device where I could kind of go somewhere else or I could summon up my family and friends if I wanted to. There could be like a disco room with like a light up dance floor, like lots of things like this. And a key argument I make in this chapter, which is on art, is about kind of the imaginative power of art because this was a project that kind of was turned into a kind of artistic kind of design thing once all of these ideas were brainstormed and I kind of look at each of these suggestions from service users and survivors and say you know they're actually not as quote mad as we would think they're actually many of them linked to the fundamental things that people are deprived of when they are within mental health care so for example you know, the desire to have a teleportation device where you can summon up family and friends, that speaks to the fact that when people are sectioned, they're deprived of access to their communities and the outside world. Or one person said, you know, the asylum I need is my flat, um, but made safe. And again, that speaks to the desire for people to actually want to be within their home environments and within their communities, um, but with that sense of, of safety embedded. Or, you know, many people are completely deprived of access to walking around in nature when they're sectioned. So, again, the idea that you'd want a nature room or a weather room speaks to these very fundamental desires that people are deprived of in institutional settings. By using imagination in this very kind of childlike, like radical way, it can actually be a really powerful tool for helping us transform our society and saying, OK, well, while these things that we've written down might not be possible, how can we even grasp towards them? You know, if we even get 20 percent of the way there, what would that look like? And so, yeah, I think this project is a really kind of powerful way of using art and imagination tangibly kind of moving us towards a, a transformed world that I argue is possible and is within our reach. Absolutely. Maybe we'll leave it there, I think. So Misha, thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been really lovely to talk to you. And um, yeah. Thank you. And thanks for the kind words. It's been really great to chat. That was Misha Fraser Carroll on Radicals and Conversation. You can find out more about her new book, Mad World, on plutobooks.com. It's included in our summer sale until the end of July. And after that, you can get 40% off using our usual discount code podcast at the checkout. Don't forget to like, share and subscribe if you've enjoyed today's episode. We'll be back soon with another episode of Radicals in Conversation in-house on the politics of Ursula Le Guin. So until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>